Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting, information-packed episode of That's Truth. We are broadcasting from the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and as usual, sitting across the broadcast desk from me is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who may be listening to the program. We are honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and listen to the program. It doesn't matter where you're listening from. I know that we have listener in India. I know that we on occasion have listeners in Papua New Guinea. I know that we also at times have listeners throughout the Eastern Caribbean, the UK. It doesn't matter where you're listening from. We look forward to you interacting with us on the program tonight. And when I say interact, I mean it. Uh, There are a number of ways that you can communicate with us, your question, your thoughts, your concerns. Maybe it's a question about what the Bible says, why it doesn't say something, how we should interpret a verse. That's why Pastor is here, is to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. We have a lot of questions that have already come in or are from last week, so we will jump into those in just a minute. But let me just encourage you to invite others to tune into That's Truth. We don't want this to be the best-kept secret out there. We want you to encourage others to tune in. Send them a WhatsApp. Give them a quick phone call, a text message. Maybe just call uh, down the street to your friend, family, neighbor, and say, hey, tune in to 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, or online, www.radiolighthouse.org. That's Truth is on for the next 90 minutes. Pastor Murphy, we're going to start out with a question that came in last week. Uh, Psalm 27 and verse 7 and the surrounding verses. And the question from the listener was, Can Satan interrupt your prayer when you are about to get a breakthrough? Yeah, I think we said we'll spend some time um, trying to examine that question more carefully. And the reason why I didn't want to give the impromptu answer is because I didn't have time to read the whole passage and to get the, the, the text in the context of which it was written. Uh, let me just say a few words about the psalm, and then I'll um, kind of explain and answer the question that the person asked. This psalm, if you check uh, Psalm 27, if you check the psalm before, the psalm after, you'll see it's written in the context where in Psalm chapter 26, uh, David is pleading for God to examine him and to search him. In Psalm uh, chapter uh, Psalm 27, Psalm 28, sorry, uh, it's, it's a prayer where he's asking God for help. Sandwiching between Psalm 26 and Psalm 27 is, is 28. Is this Psalm 27 that uh, the, the uh, person asks about? This particular Psalm is a Psalm that expresses David's profound faith in God. Um, 
it's actually divided into three sections. Uh, the first uh, six verses, uh, David expresses his, his, his confidence, his enthusiastic confidence. Um, and that's the key, key thing in the first six verses. He, he calls God, uh, his, uh, God is his guardian, God is his light, God is his salvation, God is his fortress. And then he talks about his desire uh, to enjoy God's presence and have fellowship with God within the temple. And uh, afterwards, he talks about his triumph over his enemies, and then he said he will respond in gratitude to God uh, when these are done. So the first six verses, tremendous optimism that David expresses. And then suddenly you come to verse number seven, and the whole tone uh, of the psalm changes uh, from this uh, enthusiasm that David expressed. There's more of a somber tone uh, in this passage where David optimism seemed to have abundant optimism and now he's given some anxious supplications. Uh, in, in, in 7 to 12, uh, he pleads for Jehovah to not to forsake him. He asked God, uh, reminding God of his promises and his past mercies and pleads for God to intervene on his behalf. So you notice in one case, he's so optimistic in verses 1 to 6, and you come to verse number 7, uh, he kind of uh, is now thinking in terms of God forsaking him, and now he's, he's changed. His mood has changed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The last uh, two verses, uh, he talks about Jehovah as the only one that he can stay. This is help. And then he encourages himself to be, have faith and patience and wait on God. Now, I think the reason why the, the uh, person wrote and asked about the... Uh, verse number seven, because there's such a radical change between the first six verses and then suddenly in verse number seven, David is, is, is changed. There, there are several ways that uh, this can be explained. One is, um, you know, this is human nature. You can be praying to God and you're so optimistic, then suddenly uh, something comes to your mind that kind of changes your thought patterns and you, you're going to a negative. The other thing is that uh, remember that these are songs that David wrote. You ever start writing a piece of literature and then put it down and came back to it? And you started off writing a certain train of thought and then a few days have gone by and then you add something else and there's no connect between connection because you're two different moods. So it's a possibility that David, um, these are two psalms that David have put together and he started off um, writing and he was in an optimistic mood and then the latter part is he'd come into the dull drums maybe and was beginning to feel a little bit negative. So I think the changed circumstances uh, that David is dealing with and under which he wrote the psalm could probably explain why there's this radical change from optimism to some kind of a plaintive um, uh, somber mood in in the latter part of the verses. Uh, the other thing is that you know we can't underestimate the attack of the enemy. Uh, when we're praying. So it's a, it's, a, it's a possibility, again, that he could be under some uh, attack spiritually. So I don't discount the suggestion uh, that a person can be praying to God and uh, the enemy intervenes and to create um, dead in the spirit. So that's a possibility. But I think in this particular psalm of David, I just think it's probably on two different occasions uh, and the, the change circumstances help to change his mood. And, and you know what? That is the humanness of David and that's the, that shows us the humanness of the psalmist. And I think it helps us to understand as well that we go through those fluctuations of mood. One moment we're very optimistic about God. Another moment uh, we're wondering if God is hearing our prayer. It's just a common part of human nature that we go into these hills and these valleys, I think that's to be expected. But that doesn't mean we can't discount the fact that the enemy also plays a part in this. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question last week. 
Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Anguilla, and this came in right at the end of last week's program, and we didn't have time to cover it, but I did throw it out there. So if you were listening last week and you tuned back in specifically for this question, here is their opportunity to hear Pastor's answer. Comes from Anguilla. Thank you to the individual who sent it. Pastor, I'm not a Rastafarian. I'm a born-again Christian. But when I read some parts of the Old Testament, it is telling me that my blackness is in the Hebrew people. I just want to know the truth. Was Moses a black man born in Egypt and raised by the Africans? Well, the answer to the question, you've got several questions that were asked, so let me let me see if I can answer them very quickly, and then I will explain. First of all, Moses was not a black man, okay? Moses was a Jew. Uh, I will show you very clearly that um, that's the case. Uh, the second thing is that um, he was not raised by Africans. He was raised by his mother, uh, even though he was living in Egypt. Um, he was born in Egypt. Um, the Bible makes that very, very clear. He was born in Egypt. Uh, and then I think later on the the question about Zipporah, his wife. Yeah, his uh, uh, Zipporah was not a black person either. Uh, she was a Midianite, and I will show you that the Midianites came as a result of uh, uh, Abraham uh, marrying Keturah. And uh, did he have an interracial marriage? Yes, he did have an interracial marriage when he married the Ethiopian, the Kushite. So there, yes and no to some of your questions. But let me begin to deal with the whole issue here about whether Moses was a black man or not. First of all, let me just say, I don't know what the big issue is all about, whether a person be pink, blue, or black you know, in this matter. What, what, what's the importance of being a Hebrew? Uh, when you come to the New Testament, uh, the New Testament thrust is that there's neither Jew nor Gentile but one a new creature in Christ. So I think the emphasis of trying to find identity in some um, human race or some human ethnic group, I think that is a, a distraction from the gospel. Hmm. The fact is that what really matters before God is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither black nor white nor pink nor blue nor green. What matters is the new man in Christ, a new creature in Christ. That needs to be stated very clearly. The other thing that the entire purpose of God uh, even in choosing Israel and choosing the Hebrews, was never intended exclusively for Jewish purpose only. The eternal plan of God is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. That's what it is all about. It's not, uh, when, but he had to use uh, um, a human um, group, and he just chose the Jews. But it was not just intended for the Jews exclusively. It was intended to, to redeem the entire world. And uh, So that needs to be made very clearly. The other thing in Galatians, Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, sure. did I hear you correctly to say that, um, and I'm connecting the dots a little further than what I believe you said, but mm-hmm. is it, do you believe it's possible that the enemy, Satan, could use us getting hung up on trying to find race in the Bible in order to distract from our effectiveness as the gospel? I think so. I, I think, what, what is what, in my whole, ju- this is just my judgment in the whole mm-hmm. matter, a lot of this movement about um, black people being Hebrews and stuff like that, it's really as a result of the black nationalistic movement and, and the Rastafarian movement, right? That's, what, that's the result of it. Um, but I think they're missing the whole concept of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. It, it, what, what does it matter if I am 
pink, blue, green, or black. What really matters, am I in Christ? Mm. So I think all of these are distractions. I, I, I keep saying to people this, and I say this before, I don't believe in a white church. I don't believe in a black church. I believe that there's a, in a church. And I think that we have drawn lines that should never have been drawn, and because of that, it has affected Christianity. It's now coming back to bite us, to be very honest with you. But I think we need to go back to the Bible to understand that uh, if you read the book of Ephesians, that God's plan was to break down the middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's how they categorize. God said there's three categories of people in the world. You're either Jew or Gentile, you belong to the church, right? And the whole thing was to break down that middle wall of partition to create one new creature. So the important thing is to be in Christ, not to be in the Jewish nation or in the Caucasian nation or the the Occidental nation or whatever. Is to make sure that you're in Christ. That's what matters before God. It doesn't matter whether you whether a black man is a Hebrew or whether he's a or a white man is a Hebrew or whatever. That, those things don't count before God. What matters? Am I in Christ? Am I redeemed? Am I saved? Because whether I'm pink, blue, or black, and I'm not saved, I'm going to hell. So what difference does it make? But I think we we make too many issues of this matter, and uh, I think that it divides the church. Church. And uh, a lot of times it misleads people along a certain line because, uh, and I'll say something else, Nathan, that might uh, some people may not like to hear this, but this is, this is the absolute truth in the in Bible. There's no accident that the gospel went into Europe. No accident. Read the book of Acts. Paul intended to carry the gospel east, and the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit forbid him, and he, he got Lydia saved, the first uh, European. Is God's uh, plan, God's sovereignty, and God in His providence determined that the gospel would go that part of the world. So it's not an accident that has happened. The, the misfortunate thing is that, like any other culture, um, you you take what is there and you try to make it yours. So being uh, the gospel being taken to Europe. Uh, by the way, Africa had the gospel before Europe had because the Ethiopian got saved before that. But the point right. is, it was God's plan that it go to, to the west, not to the east, not to the south. That was God's plan. You can't read the book of Acts without understanding that. And I think, and I, so I do believe that it's no accident that it went in that direction. The unfortunate thing is that by creating a Caucasian Jesus, you're now getting the backlash. Because clearly Christ was not a Caucasian; he was a Jew. He was not a European; he was a Jew. Right. Uh, and I think this is where you're now getting the backlash uh, in those. But I think that people make too much of it. I think it's the, the it's swing. Pendleton is now trying to swing in the other direction. So the problem was created here, and they realize the problem. Now they're going to create another problem, and I think this is where it is part of the confusion to get people to misunderstand what this gospel is all about. Am I saved? Am I in Christ? Am I a believer? Because nobody is getting to heaven except they're in Christ. So whether I am an African or European or I'm an Occidental person, it doesn't make any difference. The question, the big question, am I in Christ? And when you come to the New Testament, you see that God's plan is to unite all in Christ, whether pink, blue, black. That is the design. So I'm saying that to, to say to the, the person who wrote it in that you should find your identity. You're real in Christ. See, if you don't do that, uh, you will never ever uh, have the sense of security that you are uh, valued and have dignity. You can't just find your dignity in whether you're European or you're African because uh, Europeans have done tremendous evil, Africans have done tremendous, Indians have done tremendous. So you can't find it in, in, in your human identity. You find your true identity in Christ, and that should be the most meaningful thing. Paul said, you know. 
uh, that all the credentials he had and all the um, the pedigree that Paul said, I count that as dung. That means nothing to me. I did. I, I put away all that for Christ. So I'm saying to the person who wrote in that thing, uh, th- th- this question that try to understand that <clears throat> what God looks for is your identity in having Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, having said that, I want to um, respond now to the whole question about whether Moses was a, an African or not. And uh, let me just, sh- sh- I'll give you some verses. The person can check these verses as we go on. In Genesis fifteen thirteen, 13, uh, the Lord told Abraham, God had called Abraham for Ur of the Chaldees, and he brought him into Canaan and promised the land of Canaan. And in Genesis 15, he told him, listen, your people are going to go into a, a land, and they will be there for 400 years and they are going to be enslaved for 400 years. And he said the reason why that is going to happen is because the iniquity of the Canaanites and the Amorites are not right. In other words, God is giving the Canaanite nations that he was going to wipe off the the, the earth and replace them with Israel. He's given them 400 years to repent. So while they're given that time to repent, he is incubating Israel in Egypt and growing a nation in Egypt. So he sends... Uh, Jacob and uh, his family into Egypt. Seventy of them goes down into Egypt. Uh, Genesis chapter 45, verse 17 to 25. They go down into Egypt. And they stay there for 350 years before Moses is born. Okay, These are Jews, Hebrews, through uh, Abraham that had gone into Egypt. And the nation develops in Egypt. This incubated in Egypt. By the time Moses leaves Egypt, the, the population of Israel is 2 million, 600,000 men alone, excluding women and boys. I'll show you that. Uh, 70 to 2 million. Yeah, yeah, within 400 years. Wow. And by the way, those who do statistics and the laws of probability know that that is a very real figure mm-hmm. based on the amount of people that be, uh, children people had had at that time. So it's very, very realistic and very, very historical. Um, when Israel came to into Egypt, and uh, the Egyptians, of course, because of Joseph, accepted um, J- uh, bringing the family down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The problem developed, however, that as Israel began to grow and the population began to expand, expand. You ever heard of xenophobia? Yeah. yeah, I mean that you're fearful of foreigners. Mm. This is exactly what happened in Egypt. The, the Jews and the Hebrews began to grow by leaps and bounds, and Pharaoh became very suspicious. Look, look at Exodus chapter 1, uh, verse 8 to 9. You see that. Now there arose a new king. Well, read verse 7 first, please. Yeah. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Verse 9, And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Okay, so now that they're getting... It's just like Antigua. If you have all the the Dominican Republic people coming to Antigua, and it seems as though they're going to overwhelm the the normal population, you're going to get a backlash. We got a backlash, I think, two elections ago when the government began to deal with the whole question of foreigners. Antiguans became very concerned about too many foreigners. I think 30% of Antigua's population are foreigners. So the same fear began to develop in Egypt after the Jews came in, and uh, Pharaoh has to do something to try to to reduce their number. In verse 12, uh, he comes up with a plan 
But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because the children of Israel. On verse 13, you see that what Pharaoh now decides to do is to uh, enslave them. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. So that's at the point that they would have become slaves. They yeah. weren't slaves before no, that. No, they came in with Joseph. Remember that Joseph had saved the economy right. by his seven-year economic plan. Pharaoh appreciated it and gave the Joseph position. He was able to bring down his family. But it was all part of the divine plan because in chapter 15, the Lord said, they're coming down into Egypt. I'm going to spend 400 years there, and then they're going to go into and conquer Canaan. But uh, So they're now enslaved. And then if you look at verse 15, and the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Sephara, and the name of the other Puha. Uh-huh. And, and he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a, a daughter, then she shall live. So now you got infanticide. We gotta control the population of these Hebrews. They're multiplying too much. So the Egyptians said, "What we're gonna do now is that we're gonna abort them as soon as the child is born, before they even come out. We're gonna kill them." So they got the midwives to assist in this matter of abortion. But again, if you read the text, uh, they continue to multiply, uh, and as a result, a, a third strategy came up. Look at verse twenty-two. And Pharaoh charged all of the people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So the idea now, we're going to drown them. We're going to drown the males. Uh, we're going to keep the females because our people can marry the females, but we're going to get rid of the men. So it's, it's gone from enslavement to infanticide to actually murder, uh, murder by mm-hmm. drowning. Uh, now, now, during this particular time, um, um, Moses is born, uh, and y- we are told in look at Exodus chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took, a, took to wife a daughter of Levi. Uh-huh. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Now, notice that uh, this son is Moses. Who's his father? Uh, Levi. Now, his father is from the tribe of Levi. Tribe of his Levi. mother is yeah. also from the tribe of Levi. Next question is, wh- where is the tribe of Levi? Where did it come from? That's one of Jacob's sons. Mm. So Moses is a Hebrew. He's not an he's not an Egyptian. He's not an African. He is a Semitic Jew. Very very clear because he comes through the line of uh, Jacob. Okay. Uh, so um, I don't know where this idea has come from, uh, and I just don't. I know for sure it's not biblical. But somehow somebody is spinning the Bible in such a way that they're not explaining to people and going to what the Bible is teaching. Moses' father was from Levi. Moses' mother was from Levi. Levi is a, a son of Jacob, uh, which is a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. That's the first thing I want uh, to assess. So his mother, Joshebek, is a Levi, and his father, Amran, is also uh, a Levite. By the way, in Exodus 6, you don't have to read that, 16 to 20, it is also stated that Joshua and uh, Amram, who is from the Levi, is the father of Moses. So it's reaffirmed there in Exodus chapter number 6. Now, after Moses is born, um, we're told that the parents became concerned because every male child is to be drowned. 
and therefore they have to come up with a plan of how to save Moses. We are told that his sister in chapter 2 and his mom came up with a plan that what they would do, they would make a little small boat, it's called an ark basically, and put pitch inside and outside and put Moses in the little boat and put him in the bulrushes by the river. And they're hoping that somehow this will save him. And, um, and so that is done. If you look at chapter 2, verse 3, Exodus. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river brink. Yeah. Now, the, the plan as well that you, you're going to see later that the mom says to the Miriam, who is Moses' sister, you keep a watch on this particular, uh, to make sure what's going to happen to this child. In the providence of God, what happens? Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river. She sees this little boat with this little boy in it. She peeps into it, and the moment she peeps, he cries. And you know a woman's heart. She is touched and moved by his tears, and she decides she is going to adopt this boy. So what happens? She says to Miriam, um, look at verse number 6, verse 5 and 6. Read 5 and 6, please. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. See, even Pharaoh's daughter saying, This is a Hebrew. This is yeah. not one of us. Interesting. No, I've never, I, I, I've ne- that word's never jumped out at me. Yeah, because I, what, what has happened is that people, uh, and I, I try to understand it, uh, it's difficult for me to understand why there's so much passion to to take the Bible, distort the Bible, what's the purpose of it? What, what, what are you trying to prove? And I think that a lot of people, because it's a black nationalist movement, do not take the time to go into the Bible to see if what we're being taught is correct. I remember uh, when the, uh, Obama sent down the, the guys down here to promote the the homosexual lifestyle, and then the change and went to something else. I remember I was in that function. I listened to the guy uh uh, and, and his teaching, and I knew very, very clearly where he was coming from. He was coming from a black nationalist position, quite frankly, and trying to put the, the uh, to prove that basically what, what this guy is talking about that the black people were the Hebrews, et cetera, et cetera. I walked out of the, sur- the, out of the thing because I realized this is total foolishness. It didn't take my time to, to see that. But, uh, but here's the point now. now so she realized it's a Hebrew. And she says, look at verse 7 and 8. She says to uh, Miriam, go and find somebody to take care of this child for me. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. That's the, that's the irony of it. That uh, the mother, she actually, so the mother who actually, the person who actually brings up Moses is his own mother. Uh, so she, he wasn't brought up by Egyptians. He was brought up by his own mother. Um, so his mom um, brings up Moses. He's weaned, etc. He comes to an age, and then he turns the child. She turns the child over to the care of Pharaoh. Verse ten. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Yeah. You will learn later in the book of Acts, chapter 27, when Stephen is given his his, um, his, his sermon, 
He says in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, that Moses was educated or learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh's daughter gave, Ab- gave Moses the same quality education that an Egyptian princess would have because he is now seen as a princess that could become the king of Egypt because she's, he's the adopted son of, of a, So he's well educated in all the knowledge of the, um, the Egyptians. But the thing that Moses never forgot is that he was a Hebrew. And uh, Moses came to the point where he had to make a choice. And when he was 40 years old, he decided it's time to liberate his people. In Exodus twenty eleven, could you read that? Exodus 20? No, Exodus 2, 2, 11, two, two 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian. Now notice again. The distinction between his brethren, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians. He, he said, he, go ahead. He spied an Egyptian hitting in Hebrew one of his brethren. Okay, and Moses, of course, in his passion and his anger, uh, because of his concern to liberate his people, uh, Moses acts very hastily. And what does he do? Read the next verse. And he words. looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no one, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Hid him in the sand. And then it, it becomes knowledgeable to Pharaoh, who's Ramses by the time, that uh, what Moses has done. When uh, Moses learned that Pharaoh has learned about this, um, he flees Egypt. Read verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. No, 2.16. Uh, chapter two, ver- Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. Yeah, what, what do you got there? Uh now the priest of Midian. No, uh, read 15 then. 15. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, yeah, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now we learn later in um, the book of Acts that when he was 40, he had 40 years in Egypt and he flew, uh, fled from uh, Egypt and went to Midian because Pharaoh now has got his... Uh, almost got a, a poster out for Moses. He's killed an Egyptian. We're going to get him. Yeah. So he's a wanted man, and he has to escape. No, he goes away, verse 16. Uh, to Midian. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Right. He goes to Midian, and he marries somebody called Zipporah. Zipporah is not an Egyptian either. That's the point I'm going to make. She's a what? A Midianite. Okay. The question is, where did the Midianites come from? Well, let's look at that for just a moment. Um... If you look at um, um, Genesis 25, verse 1 to 6. Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Right. And she bare him Zimron, and Goat Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian. See that again, Midian? That's where the Midianites came from, okay? And Midian is the fourth one. So, offspring of Abraham. He's the offspring of Abraham and Keturah. And these people, that these are tribes that she talk about, uh, Zimram, Joktan, Midian, Midian, Ishbon, and Shua, these are all Arabic um, um, tribes that uh, actually in the, uh, the Arabian area. So, these are, this, so these, this is a, a union between one of the Arab people and Moses to create this, so or so Abraham. the Midianites came out of uh, Abraham. So the, again, he's not she's, she's not African. You, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm saying that whoever is teaching this doctrine, I don't know where they're getting the information from, but it's clearly totally unscriptural and totally unbiblical. So the one that Moses marry is from Midian, and her name is Zipporah. Uh, 
she's not Egyptian either. So Moses is not Egyptian. His wife that he marries is not she's a Midianite. And so I think that answers the question of the, the fact about uh, the, whether or not the black people are, are the Egyptians or are, are, uh, are Hebrews. The answer to that question is fundamentally they're not. And that is a misteaching and false to be teaching that. And I don't know who is responsible for it, but it needs to be corrected. We will learn later, by the way, um, that in Exodus chapter 3, uh, God appears to Moses while he is there in Midian, and God sends him back down into Egypt, and he confronts Pharaoh, and he liberates his people after ten plagues. And we will uh, discover, if you look at um, Exodus, if you look in the book of Ex, uh, Exodus 12, look at 40 to 41. All right, those verses read as follows. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Yeah. And then if you'll give you how many thousands, how many thousands, and you'll find if you add up the figure, it's 600,000 that are mentioned of Hebrew men and women, uh, men alone without conquering women and children, on the basis of how many children would have, and, and month, it is estimated you're talking about 2 million people leaving out. So these are Hebrews. These are not, these are not Egyptians. Very, very, very clear that they came out of Egypt. And would there have been much um, intermarriage between the Hebrews and the Egyptians? Well, the thing about the, the Hebrews is and uh, the Jews, everybody knows that they always remain very clannish, marrying within mm -hmm. the Jewish population. It's an exception that they marry outside the Jewish population. That's why when Moses turned around and marries the Cushite, Miriam and Aaron protested. And there was a, almost a rebellion against what he was doing because uh, here they had gone to uh, came out of Egypt. They had made the covenant at Mount Sinai that uh, uh, God has chosen His own people, and now Moses turned around and married this Cushite. And you get the problem where Miriam and Aaron uh, rebelled against Moses and want to know who you think you don't want to know who, what God is saying. <laughs> and of course, God intervened in the process. Now he did marry a Cushite, which would be an Ethiopian. So there is an interracial marriage that took place uh, with Moses, but that is Moses' second marriage. It's not his first marriage, uh, and that is something that... Um, so we would acknowledge there, there was a... Uh, in terms of uh, Moses' second marriage, it was to an Ethiopian. So that would be an interracial marriage. Time across the Eastern Caribbean, and in our studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, is 8.05... Thank you for listening to CRL. On this Tuesday evening, we have the program called That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program. And we have a number of ways that you can interact with us. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. I know I just gave that to you quickly, so I'll give it to you again a little slower. 1-268-462-7420. Seven four two zero is to be put live on the air. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to two six eight 
782-1454. You can also send your questions via Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment your question in the comment feed beside or below the video image. So I don't. I hope I've answered the, the, the person's question and, and put it uh, kind of straight so they can get a big understand but I, I, I would want to repeat what I said before it, it, whether a person is uh, Hebrew or not is immaterial uh, what really matters today is to make sure a person is in Christ that's what the whole Christian faith is about our identity and finding our identity in Christ and not trying to find it in our race or trying to find it in our ethnicity uh, that's not where our true identity should be found it should be found in Christ Pastor a follow up question from the person in Anguilla who sent in this question they say good evening Pastor I'm listening and learning my last question on the issue is the following in your studies of the Bible have you identified anyone that was black of course well we just talked about the the second wife of Moses, uh, she was a Kushite, so she would have. Not only that, don't forget if you check the genealogies in the in the in the um, in the, in the Genesis, you'll find that the Canaanites came through the Hamitic line. Remember the three lines: the Japhetic line where the Europeans came from. There is a Semitic line where the the Arab and the and the uh, and then there's also the Hamitic line, which is where the black. And you'll find that that so in that line is it people Canaan. And remember that. Um, um, oh my! In Acts, there's the example of the man who uh, I think it was maybe even called Niger. Yeah, he's from Niger. That, that's yeah. an African. But yeah. not only that, the, uh, Rahab okay. was a Canaanite. Re- okay, okay, yes. right. So if you look at that, so within the bloodline of Christ, if you read the genealogy, you got you got Rahab in there as well. So it, it, you know, look, all the races are mixed up. As a matter of fact, I would say something that might shock people, but the the Hyksos people. Uh, invaded uh, Egypt and controlled Egypt for over 300 years. That was the time this, uh, that was called the Hyksos people. That's the time when Abraham and Moses and them lived. Uh, there was a, 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 a group from Asia called the Hyksos people that in the 12th um, dynasty and the 13th dynasty. They actually invaded Egypt and controlled Egypt for 300 years. So there's a mixture between the Asian coming from the north and the Egyptians as well. So everything everything is mixed up, and I don't know why they're making this whole big thing about it. Because look at North Africa, and uh, look at El- Algeria, or look at any of those um, Libya. You look at the people in those nations. Well, it's a it's a mixed race. It's a mixed race. So mm-hmm. and that is the oh, not only that the the Greeks conquered Egypt. Alexandra, for example, in Egypt was actually built by Alexander the Great. So there's a, a mixture there in, in, in Egypt. And, uh, and uh, all I would say to the gentleman, and I understand, I mean, I try to understand the whole thing that's going on and why people are, it's such an important thing. I cannot overemphasize that we're missing out the, the, the central thing about the whole thing about our identity and our worth and our value. God made of all people it came from two individuals okay Adam and Eve and uh, out of the, we've got all the races so we must not try to find our identity line. as far as the Christian is concerned the most important thing is to know that I am in Christ because that's all that ultimately matters Pastor we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua thank you for calling again and go ahead with your question please Good night, good evening. Hey, good evening. Good night. How are you? Good, sir. 
You got a Nathan, how are you? I'm doing very well. Doing well. Thank you. I enjoy your service for me. Oh, I'm glad you was there. I was glad to see your wife for the, for the first time face to face. So I was uh, I'm very pleased to see you. Thanks for coming to the service. I appreciated that. Yes, well, I, I got a shock of my life because I believe Pastor Nathan was a, a man of 200 and something feet. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, my. We'll call it a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, Pastor Nathan, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to help me out there. We've John chapter 1. Uh-huh. Verse 41 to 51. John chapter 1, verse 41 to 51. Yes. Okay. Nathan, can you read that? Nathaniel and then. Uh, that I would like to ask you, especially uh, Nathaniel, when Philip find Nathaniel, and, and God tell him that Nathaniel is a man without no guilt. Yeah. Uh, Israelite without no without guilt. Without any guile, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. If he was a Christian before... No, no, I, I don't think he was a Christian. It's just that you, you, here's an honest man. That's what he's basically saying. This is an honest man. Um, so that's what surprised um, Nathaniel, that Christ knew his character. So when he said there's no guy, it don't mean he was a perfect man. It just means that this is a very honest person, a man of integrity. That's what he was saying. But it doesn't mean he was saved before. He was saved after. But, you know, you've got people, some people that are not Christians that are very, uh, have very good morals, very good standards. And, and the Lord is saying to Nathaniel, who's a Jew, uh, quite frankly, that, you know, you, you've got good character. You, you're a man of integrity. So he's, he's, he's drawing that to Nathaniel's uh, attention. But he's not saying that he's perfect. He's not saying that he's saved. He's just recognizing the character of the man and giving him credit for the fact he's an honest man. Oh, because that had me a kind of a way that I really need. I find it all your material that a man that is not a Christian has got no guilt, no like no wrong in him. You remember, you remember in Acts chapter ten when he talked about um, the centurion. Uh, Cornelius, I mean, you read the character of that man, a man that is praying night and day, and he's searching for God, and the Lord gives him credit for that. So there are people who are not Christians, who really in their desire to find God, uh, are searching, and God acknowledges that fact. So, But it doesn't mean that they're perfect or they're saved, it's just that they're honest people who are trying to really find answers to the, the deepest longings, and uh, God recognizes that. But Pastor, when when people is praying, and they believe they're praying to God, uh-huh. praying honestly. At what point do you believe that God answered the prayer? At what point? Point of repentance or the? No, I think I think the the thing the, the whole focus there is the the desire to find God to get an answer. How can I be saved? How can I get to know you know you as God? I think when a person begins to search for God with all of his heart, that is that when he really wants to find out who is this God of the Bible, is he real? What is he like? What's his character? What's his attributes? How do I get to know him? How can I build a relationship with him? I think when a person desires that kind of and is very sincere. God takes it upon himself and he's promised if you search for me with all your heart you'll find me and he will bring somebody into contact with that individual and give them a, a better understanding of uh, how to get in contact with God in terms of building a relationship to his son the Lord Jesus Christ by putting the faith and trust in his finished work on the cross because there's some people are telling you they're praying to God and God and saying the prayer and God blessing them and, and their own faith yeah, yeah. so I don't know I well, no, you know, no, 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 all you've got to tell people like that sometimes is remember the devil answers prayer too. He hears, exactly. right? So yeah. he can make mm. things happen and make you think it's God. Just like uh, in the book of Job, some things that happened to Job, Job must have thought it was God was doing it. For example, when the, the lightning came and, and burned up his house, I mean, you think that God controls the elements. 
so there are things that Satan does that uh, people g- give credit uh, to God for. So all I would say to you to such people, I would encourage them to, to, to pray, to get to know the living and the true God, to search for him, to get to know him. Uh, but I uh, I would tell them to be, you know, because they're, everything is going well and they're not having problems and maybe they got a new house, a new car, a new fr- refrigerator, they're looking at the carnal blessings uh, as a measure of God's intervention in their life. They need to look at the spiritual change and transformation, which is far more important than material things. Okay, then. Thank for your explanation. You have Psalm 27. I, very, I appreciate it very much. Okay. Okay. God bless you. Yes. Say hi to the wife as well, please. Okay, I do that. Thank, okay. thank you very much for the call. And I want to say thank you very much for consistently calling in with different questions. Uh, you obviously are spending time in God's Word. Keep it up uh, to have uh, these different questions about different verses, different parts of the Bible. That's encouraging to see. We would encourage you to uh, visit Grace Baptist Church. That's the church that Pastor Murphy pastors. It's located in Antigua on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace. Uh, We have Sunday morning service at 10 a.m., Sunday school an hour before that at 9 a.m., and then we also have Thursday evening uh, prayer time and Bible study on Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. We would love to have you stop by and visit, especially if you are looking for a Bible-teaching church here in Antigua. Now, if you already are part of a church that is faithfully teaching the Bible, we are not trying to pull you away from that. Stay active in the church that God has you. But if you are in a time of transition and you're looking for a Bible-preaching church, we would invite you to visit Grace Baptist Church. I'm going to share the contact information with you again. And when we come back from that, the next question, uh, I just want to give a heads up to parents who may have young children listening. The next question may get a little uh, sexually descriptive, but uh, we will uh, answer that question as it has come in. If you would like to call and be put live on the air, the phone line is available again, 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Pastor Murphy, this is a WhatsApp question that's come in uh, from the island of Antigua. Good evening. My question is, does a marriage partner have to remain in a marriage where the husband refuses to have sex with his wife, yet goes out and comes back with semen in his clothes? He claims it's from masturbation, but there is evidence otherwise. Pastor, how would you answer that from a well, biblical world? There are three things that the person is talking about. Yeah, first of all, is the husband not performing his responsibilities and duty to his wife in terms of meeting her sexual needs? The, the second one has to do with the fact that... Um, he gives evidence that he is somehow sexually involved, uh, but he is using the fact of masturbation as the excuse and the whatever is found on his clothing, uh, he uses that. And the third thing is, um, um, does that become the basis for a person to 
divorce or leave her husband, etc. So we're dealing with, with, with three things. I think one of the best things we can do to approach this question is, first of all, ask ourselves, what's the design and purpose of marriage? Okay, because let's understand what marriage is, and then we're going to talk about the responsibility of the husband to the wife in that regard. Uh, when you check the scriptures, uh, it is clear that man did not design marriage. God is the one that instituted marriage, and God established marriage. And he did it basically for three or four reasons. One is for companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. One is for children to be fruitful and multiply, so there has to be sexual activity because children cannot reproduce apart from sexual activity. The other thing is for pleasure. You read the book of Song of Solomon and he, he glories in the ecstasy of, of, of sexual life with, a, with, with his partner and then also to complement uh, fill in the the deficiencies and the inadequacies with each other's strength, etc., etc., and that's to, to complement each other, uh, help meet. That's what the Bible uses. And then, of course, it's to to nurture a godly seed. That's the the whole rule of a family of, of a home. Now, having said that, and because we're dealing specifically in the area of sex, let's talk about what are the obligations within marriage when it comes to the sexual. Um, duties and you, the best place to find that is First Corinthians chapter 7 and uh, ask Nathan to turn to the First Corinthians chapter 7 what verse? Uh, let's start with verse number 3 Okay. let the husband render unto his wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband okay um, c- could you read f- maybe a little bit earlier uh, mm-hmm. where Paul explains why people should get married Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Okay, so Paul, if you read verse number one as well, he's talking yep. uh, better to, to marry than to burn, basically. He's talking about the problem of immorality in the pagan world. And uh, Paul is trying to explain that as believers who are saved out of paganism, the temptation to go back into sexual immorality is very real. And God has designed a means to have that sexual release and that is in the context of marriage so Paul is saying if you can't if you're burning uh, you've got lustful desires uh, Paul has said it's better you go ahead and get married right so so marriage is designed to meet the sexual needs any expression of sex outside of marriage is, is wrong it is evil it is contrary to God's will and God abominates it let's understand that very clearly uh, any sexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden by scripture uh, but now, bec- when now that a person is married, Paul is now explaining that that obligation to meet the sexual needs really uh, should be a mutual thing within the marriage. Go back and read verse number three again. Verse number three says, "Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife unto the husband." Now I want to read that in the a modern translation, which helps a little because benevolence sounds as though they're doing a favor. That's not what Paul is saying. This is how it should be translated: The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And if you read verse number two, and very clearly, it's talking about the sexual duty. It's a duty, it's a responsibility that a husband has. He must fulfill it. It's it's an imperative. It's not that if he wants to or not. It's an obligation that is laid upon him because once you go into marriage, that is part of the duty within the context of marriage. You can't go into marriage and don't want to have sex. If you don't want to have sex, don't want to get married. But once you get married, uh, you must be prepared to fulfill your responsibilities in meeting the need of your partner. So sex is a mutual obligation on the part of the husband 
and the wife. So he says, let the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Likewise, the wife must also to her husband. Read verse number four. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also the husband hath not of his own body, but the wife. Again, the Apostle Paul is very, very clear. He know he's beginning to explain that a married couple is under must understand there must be a mutual right to exercise uh, their freedom in the pursuit of having their sexual needs met. Uh, a wife should feel that way. And a husband should feel that way. It's not a one-sided thing that a man wants to have intimacy and a woman doesn't want. A woman may want to have. So when a man, a husband wants to have intimacy, Paul is saying uh, the wife has no control over her body. She just can't say no. He can't say no. It doesn't mean that there are extenuating circumstances where that might be. Uh, you might have to. You can't. It can't be allowed. But the general feeling is here that if the person has a need, the partner should respond positively. That's the whole point, whether it's a male or female. So there must be a mutual uh, feeling between the two and understanding that they have to meet the sexual needs of each other. And there should be no debate about that. That is part of being married. So uh, it's wrong to starve your partner. And to stifle your partner, if he has drives of that nature, you as a wife should meet his needs, and he as a husband should meet your needs. That is what Paul is saying. It's something mutual. It's not a one-sided thing, okay? Um, Paul puts it this way. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. Uh, this is a mutual right that each person have. okay? Now read verse number 4. Five, sorry. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your intimacy. So Paul is emphasizing here now that sexual intimacy between partners should be regular. And he's saying, as a matter of fact, in the, in the Greek language, he says, stop depriving one another. <laughs> it's a command, it's an imperative. Paul is saying, stop it, right? Uh, etc. So he is now saying that they should not deprive each other, and it's wrong when a partner uh, has sexual needs and the other partner is resisting meeting those needs for whatever reason, maybe out of spite, uh, maybe out of, of, of trying to control, maybe to get their own will. Paul is saying that is completely wrong within the marriage. So you must not deprive. And then in verse number um, six, uh, 5b, he says, the only biblical grounds for a healthy couple to deprive each other of sexual pleasure to meet their needs. Paul says three things. Number one, there must be mutual agreement that we will not engage in sexual activity. Mutual agreement. They must agree together. One partner can say, you know, I want to fast. I want to pray for a week without getting the other partner's input into this whole matter. So not a unilateral decision that can be made. It, they must mutually agree. And then if they do agree that to abstain, it must be for a limited time. Uh, that's what Paul is saying in that. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. That's the literal translation. So it must, you must take into consideration the power of the drive that is there, that is natural. And, 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 and so there must be a limit to how long we will deprive, deprive each other. And then the other one is it must only be for some spiritual exercise. He says for prayer, right? So uh, not that you want to lose weight or, or some other factor. Paul is saying there must be a spiritual reason not to want to engage in meeting your partner's needs. And then Paul adds in verse number 5, 
um, that uh, last part of verse number five uh, C says what? Lest Satan tempt you. Yeah, come to you said what? Come, come together. Come together again. Uh-huh. That Satan tempt you not for your intimacy. So he's saying to you right now. Oh, sorry, not in yeah yeah, yeah in continency. Right. In other words, your lack of control. He's saying, no, look, yeah. listen, you've deprived yourself of a period of time, but don't let this be too long because you need to restore sexual intimacy. And he said, you must come together again, lest Satan take this as an opportunity and a foothold to tempt your partner to find uh, fulfillment of his needs outside the marriage. So Paul is saying, this is a tool that the devil would use. And by the way, uh, I think a woman wrote that um, note to us yes. on the internet. Yeah. That's an exception. Normally, it's not the woman complaining that the man doesn't want to meet her needs. In most cases I deal with, it's the man complaining that the woman uh, feels that he wants too much intimacy. Mm. So this man must be blessed and he doesn't realize how blessed he is. <laughs> but the point is that you must come together lest Satan uh, tempt you. And... Um, Verse, the last part of it, he said what? Because of lack of your, incont- and the word is self-control. Okay. And uh, that's what the word really means. So, because of the lack of self-control and the, this this powerful sex drive, Paul is saying you come back together very quickly, you meet each other's needs, because if you don't, the devil will get into your marriage and the, your partner will try to find, have his needs met outside the marriage, which leads to adultery, which leads to the, the, the breakdown of trust, which leads to divorce, which leads to the, the home being destroyed. So uh, it, it's very, very clear uh, that the, the Bible not only tells you the reasons for marriage, but also says when in the context of marriage, there are sexual duties that are the responsibility of the partners, and it's a mutual mutual thing. Now, the third thing that the, the uh, uh, person mentioned is the excuse, that he is coming home, and uh, I guess she's examining his clothing because nothing is happening for a week or two or three or maybe a month, and she knows what, what's working, and then she discovers this this spot or whatever it is, and then she realizes, and then she confronts him and says, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm meeting my needs, but I'm meeting my needs by, by, by self-stimulation. It's called masturbation. Um, it, it tells me if it's, number one, I don't buy it. I must tell the, 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 the person I don't buy the story that a big man who has a wife who has uh, needs to be met, and she is pretty much indicating that he's not meeting her needs, and he's going to tell me. He's, so I'm not buying that one bit. I, I think that this is an excuse. I am suggesting that there may be something outside uh, that is he's, he's engaging, and probably that's the reason why his needs are being met outside. So therefore, by the time he gets home, he has doesn't got those needs already met. So there might be some kind of infidelity going on here, and you need to be very watchful as far as that is concerned. Um, but even if the person is engaging in this kind of activity, this is unscriptural. Is it so? Masturbation is evil. It's wrong. It's sin. Uh, any sex that is focused on self is wrong. Sex is always directed towards the other partner. So if this is a believer, this believer is sinning, and he needs to understand that he um, must change that and he must repent of his sin, etc., and, and try to deal with it. Um, third, the third thing is: this, this is this a basis for for me to leave or no? It's not a basis. The Bible gives two reasons. 
uh, for divorce. There must be adultery. If there's not adultery, there must be abandonment. Up to this point in time, um, you have no proof that it's adultery and and he has not abandoned you. So there's no biblical grounds for you to pursue a divorce or to tr- try to leave him. Uh, so you need to rethink uh, think this whole thing. And, and uh, let me make some suggestions to you. Number one is you need to confront your partner. The Bible says in Matthew 18, if your brother did, this is sin against you, by the way. This is sin against you as a wife, and you need to confront him over this matter. So deal with it one and one and personally. I would outline your your case before him. I would express that my needs are not being met. Uh, I will call upon him to fulfill his marital duties to me as his wife. Uh, that's the first thing I would do. I would perhaps even say, can we study First Corinthians 7 together? Uh, let's go down and see what the Bible teaches on this kind of man, presuming he's a Christian. But that's the first thing I would confront him. Number two, I would seek help. And I would recommend your pastor or a good Christian counselor to try to help with this situation. If you guys can solve the problem among yourselves, don't bring a third party involved into it, right? But if you can't and it persists, uh, it can't continue that indefinitely because number one is exposing you to temptation. And most likely, if he's not meeting, you're not meeting his needs, and he must have needs if he's a man in that here and he's married, it means that something is going to happen on the outside and that could actually destroy your marriage. So try to get a pastor or counselor. Um, thirdly, I would work on my side of the relationship. And what I mean by that is, am I attractive? You know, when, I, when he comes home, do I have flour in my hair? Um, you know, t- t- am I sweaty? Uh, that, how does it look? The house look like a hurricane passed through it. Uh, I would start examining: is is there some problem with me? Am, am I not attractive? Am I? N- so I would suggest, and then dress attractively if you can. Try to bring some charm into the relationship. Let him know that you you really really want intimacy uh, with him. And and I would also suggest initiate the encounter. Don't just wait for him to initiate. You are a wife. You have this mutual right. He doesn't own his own body. You don't own your own body. Do that. And then the other thing I would avoid, I would suggest to you as a woman who's going through this thing, is avoid very close personal contact with male friends who you admire. Because if your husband is not meeting your needs, the temptation um, is to find a friend, and sometimes that friend is a male, Somebody maybe used to date when you were younger, somebody fond of you, but you're now married. And the option now that you turn to that person, you begin to download all of this and share, etc. And of course, he's always a superman going to solve your problem and can't understand what the other guy is doing this. His whole, ten, his whole intention is to um, have a relation with you. So you've got to be very, very careful that uh, who you contact. And the third thing is find a prayer car- partner, um, a female prayer partner, that you can pray about these matters, you can share and ask that person to hold you accountable uh, for what's going on during the week, etc. Because um, if you're tempted, uh, they ought to be able to ask you those kind of questions and uh, try to help you with that. Um, I'm going to say one last thing, which might sound rather strange, but the Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. Try to use this painful experience to enter into the sufferings of Christ. And what I mean by that is 
The same way you feel loneliness, you feel disappointment, you feel betrayed, you feel hurt. Sometimes you go to sleep with your tears. Try to imagine uh, his suffering on our behalf, the loneliness he had, the betrayal he had, the, the pain he had, the the hurt, et cetera, et cetera. And that is how Paul uh, used his own sufferings to begin to have a deeper understanding of the sufferings of Christ on his uh, behalf. Uh, that will, those will be my, my recommendations to you, and I hope that somewhere you'll take up some of these and um, confront your husband and hopefully things will begin to improve. Um, I would say to you, I'm not sure who you are, but if you can't find, if your pastor can't uh, help you with that situation, not prepared to address it, and you can't find another good Christian friend or whatever that you know that your husband would respect, if push comes to shove and you would like us to meet uh, with your husband, um, I am very, very much open to try to help if I can. I'm not pushing myself. Let's, let me understand that. But you are married. I hate to see marriages disintegrate and break up, and I am prepared to do anything I can. So if I can be of any assistance, uh, feel free to contact the radio station or contact the church, and um, I will see what I can do to help. If I can help, I will try. I promise you that. Thank you for sending in that question. I know that was a very heartfelt question, a very practical. And life is not always pretty, not always easy, Pastor. There are some challenges in life. And I, I think, Nathan, the more you get to meet people and talk to people, you begin to realize a lot of people are hurting. And yeah. the other thing that always um, surprises me is that the people you think have got it together, mm-hmm. you don't have a clue. Hmm. Uh, what's going on behind the doors of the home, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes very shocking, very surprising. But that also tells us that uh, we as Christians uh, need to understand that we're there to help people who are hurting and try to help if we can. And um, let's play our role in our part. Thank you for sending in that question. And we hope that those answers from the Bible were of assistance to you. And not only to you, chances are someone else is facing a similar situation and is listening, and trust that the answers were a help. And Pastor, let me just ask you this again. I've asked you many times, but for those who have just tuned in, do you really think the Bible has the answers for every situation in life? I don't have any doubt about that. Uh, the Bible says that God has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. So whatever we need to live life successfully, God has given that to us, and that is in God's Word. There are biblical principles that apply to every modern problem that we have. There are principles that apply to it. It's just that we need to search the Bible to find the truth because it is there. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, or broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www. Dot radiolighthouse.org. And for this particular program, That's Truth, we are also online at Facebook. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can see not only what goes on behind the scenes, you can listen to the program, but you can also send us your questions through the comment section there under the video feed. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening, and in our studios is 837 we have about 24 minutes left in the program, and we still have a number of questions that we haven't gotten to from last week, and we have a couple that have come in for this week. If you haven't heard your question yet, don't give up. Don't think we are ignoring your question. We will get to it in the order that it came in. 
Pastor, last week you were talking a little bit about uh, demonology mm-hmm. and demons, and a Facebook listener commented, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. They say, rock music is a door opener for demons. Various carnal movies are door openers for demons, etc. What are your thoughts? Would you agree with that from yeah, the Bible? I, 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 um, I would endorse that. Um, I wouldn't say completely 100%, but there's no question that uh, music is one of the tools that the devil uses, and it opens some doors into the demonic world. As a matter of fact, if you see some of the posters of some of these rock stars, mm-hmm. and even some of the songs that they sing, and it, there's some of them are masked, that if you play them back, mm-hmm. you'll hear the Satanism that's in, in these songs. People have done that. So there's no question that it is used uh, for sh- satanic purposes. I would like to say I'm a little bit hesitant to tackle when it comes to the whole air music, uh, but I think it's unavoidable. I think we're going to have to have a program on it, and uh, I would have to do a lot of research as far as this is concerned. But uh, the power of music cannot be doubted. Uh, I think most of us know that music can lift your spirit, it can depress your spirit, it can it can move you and swing you, uh, it can calm your mind, it can uh, disturb your mind, uh, it can influence your behavior and your actions. I think we all know that. The other thing is, of course, it it it, um, it can get you to do things that are immoral. I mean, you look at Carnival for just an example. You see some of these women on the streets and the way they behave and the way they're walking up. Uh, there's no natural, sane person that... Uh, and some of these people are out of control. You see them and the, the, the video hits them. You wonder, but how can a person act so vulgar and so disgraceful, right? And a lot of it has to do with the music. Uh, it, it, there's a kind of music that, that moves your body and, and get your, your mindset in that kind of a, a sexual mode. So there's no doubt that... Um, it does that, and, and drugs, people involved in drugs, a lot of people use music as far as that is concerned. And um, when it also comes to the, the, the uh, demonic, um, and the occult, uh, music plays a very vital part in that. You remember in the book of Exodus, after the children of Egypt came out of Egypt, and uh, the, the story of the golden calf, yeah. they'd been to the Egypt, and one of the gods in Egypt was Apis, the, the, the calf god. Now they come out into, into the wilderness and uh, Moses gone up in the hill, he's staying too long and the people said to them, let's make us a God. Now they're not trying to replace Jehovah, but they're making Jehovah in the shape of Apis, which is the, 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 the and you remember when Moses came down, what he heard? You remember? The beating of the drum. The beating of the drum and music. See, yeah. It all goes with the heathen occult and it had to do with um, paganism. Uh, that's why you when you get witch doctors to beat the drums and uh, and get people in this kind of a mode. So there's, there's no doubt that music is an instrument and a tool of the enemy uh, when it comes to d- d- demonic as well. So I believe that very strongly. Music. And uh, I think the guy also mentioned about movies as well. Yeah. Uh, no doubt about that as well that... Um, a lot of these movies help to facilitate people's desire to get into the occult. Uh, what I've noticed as well is that they're now in the, the last, the Avatar, the last Avatar, the, the movie, uh, I saw a little bit about it, and the names that are used there, they're now teaching New Age doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the the stones and all kind of stuff like that, and uh, in a different a, set, a different type of a world that you can get into some kind of a computerized. I mean, it's so kind of a bizarre, it's more like the Matrix type of thing. But all of that is New Age stuff, and the the mind, the modern mind, is being prepared for the the New Age movement, and Hollywood is using it as well. Not only uh, Holly, uh, the music, but I think that the movies as well are part of that. I have a listener asking you to explain First Peter chapter 4 and verse number 6. I'm going to read that. First Peter 4, 6 says, 
For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but accord but live according to God in the Spirit. Uh, listeners asking specifically, is this teaching that people will get a second chance? Well, look, um, when you come to passages of Scripture like this that uh, seem to teach something that is contrary to the other biblical principles about li- this in this life you make your decision. For example, the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this what? The judgment. Yeah. So after you have completed this life, the next thing for you is that God is going to judge you for how you live. The Bible also says, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. We get saved today, we're going to get saved tomorrow. There's no second chance. Uh, the the other thing, you remember the parable of uh, Luke chapter 16, when our Lord, uh, the teaching, where Lord talked about Lazarus and the, the rich man died, and he's saying, you know, send somebody back, and he said, you know, you can't pass from one area to the other and he said if you don't hear they don't hear Moses uh, uh, and the prophets they would not even believe if one raised to the dead so as far as those three things are concerned Hebrews 9 27 um, the teaching that now is the day of salvation it's in time that salvation is and the fact that there's no moving from one compartment to the other clearly indicates that whatever decision we made seals our destiny so when you come to Patrick this is First Peter chapter 4 um, verse 6? Yes, verse yeah. 6. Um, it, it, you either fit your interpretation to contradict the Bible, or you interpret it in a way that it fits within the general tenor of Scripture, that our destiny is sealed uh, uh, from the time we, we die, because this is our day to make a decision. Um, fourth Peter chapter says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. What he's saying here is basically that the gospel was preached to people who have now died. That's what he's, he's saying. This is the reason why the gospel was preached to those people. He's not saying that the gospel is preached to the dead. Okay. Right? He's saying the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. That's what he's saying here. So it has nothing to do with a second chance, basically. That is the, that's the interpretation, and that's the only interpretation that falls in line with the biblical doctrine that there's no second chance. You only got cultic groups that teach second chance, which would be the, the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon churches. They all teach that there's going to be a second chance. The other thing, if you read the general context of chapter number four, uh, um, and, and read before you find it, Peter is really teaching about believers willing to suffer in the will of God and because believers are willing to suffer in the will of God, they're not doing the things that the, they were doing before. And because they're not doing that, the people now are beginning to criticize them and mocking them. If you look at, uh, if you read for, for as much as uh, verse 1, then as Christ have suffered. For uh, as for much us, then. Oh. Yeah, read that. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, that he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Go ahead, read. Continue. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and ad, 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 ah, tongue twister. Ad, 
which one? Ab- abominable idolatries. I got okay. it out. Okay. <laughs> four. Uh, verse four. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Right. Now, if you the, the whole context there is that here are believers trying to live in the will of God. They're coming out of the pagan lifestyle, and they're not doing the same things they used to do with these other people. Uh, he talks about um, lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, reveling, banqueting, and abominable things. They're no longer doing it. And they're thinking it's strange. Hmm. How come you used to do these things before, and they're not doing, doing it with us? Uh, and, and what Paul is, is trying to say here is that these people are going to be judged. Right? That's what Paul is saying in the next verse that they're going to be judged. So he's trying to give a motive of why the believers should live in the will of God. That's what he's saying. And in verse number five, n- number six, uh, he explains that the gospel is preached to those who were once living but are now dead. But then he goes on to give the reason for it, right? He begins to explain that people judge them according to the flesh, right? Uh, uh, it's like saying, well, you know, you, you go through life once. Enjoy the the best of it. So they're dead. They're dead, as far as they're concerned. But we the next part of the verse uh, that they, that might, they be, might be judged according to men in the flesh. But what live according, live according to, to, God. to God? So what? Just saying that these people are judging these people. That you know, oh, they talk about you know this Christian faith. Uh, we enjoy our life, whatever. They're not engaging, but they're now dead. So as far as they're concerned, they're just dead people. But the Lord is saying here in this passage that that's how they judge them, as though they're they didn't get they didn't make, they, what I'm saying they didn't get the kick out of life and now they're dead but he's saying that they did that for one reason but that they might live according to God the Spirit that they will continue to live through the Spirit in other words they have eternal life and they're alive with, with the Lord that's basically what the teaching is there uh, what I would suggest to the person who um, sent it in is to get a modern translation and you'll see the the interpretation becomes much more clearer if you were to use the the um, the English standard ver- ESV or use the New American Standard Version. Uh, the explanation is very very clear in those verses. The King James is a little bit cloudy there, and I can see people thinking that that somehow that those people that died the gospel was preached, but that's not what is being taught. In other words, the gospel was preached to those who were alive, but they're now dead. So the, the people who are dead they had the gospel preached to them when they were alive. That's what he's saying, right? That's the teaching. It's not saying that people are going to have a second chance. That makes a lot more sense. Thank you for the individual who sent in that question. I believe that was from St. Kitts. Uh, Pastor, we have a text, a series of text messages from St. Kitts Nevis. It says, Good night, Pastor. Can you please explain Deuteronomy 27, verse 17? Why a curse? And I'm going to read that verse so that we are all on the same page. Deuteronomy Chapter 27, and verse number 17 says, Cursed be the, cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Yeah. Again, if you uh, do to army there, uh, you know, if you read the scriptures, you're going to find that this expression of a curse uh, is, is mentioned several times, and um, it is mentioned not by men that are evil, 
the men mentioned by men who were godly men and who speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For example, uh, G- Genesis two, f- um, uh, Genesis, uh, you find that Noah curses Canaan, his grandson, because he came and he saw his nakedness, right. and he pronounced a curse and etc. In Genesis forty nine, uh, Jacob curses two sons who, in their fury, went on and slaughtered. Uh, Shechem's the people of Shechem because one had raped uh, his, his, his their daughter uh, their sister and he said in your passion you you you, you know you did this and he, he pronounced a curse upon them Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27 pronounced a curse for anybody who violates the law in Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 15 and 16 Joshua also pronounced a curse upon anyone who seeks to rebuild um, Jericho he said um, that he pronounced a curse upon they'll build uh, in their firstborn, and 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 uh, when they complete the secondborn, would die. The curse is pronounced. A curse basically is a pronouncement, or in what is called an imprecation or invocation of uh, wishing God to bring evil upon somebody because of something evil that that person has done. So it's asking God to bring mischief into that person's life, for God to bring judgment in that person's life. In the case of Deuteronomy. Removing the ancient, the person's landmark is stealing the man's property, right? And uh, he's saying that the God ought to intervene and judge this person because they're stealing the man's property. Under the Mosaic law, and I think you'll notice, and this is one of the great things about Israel, each land was partitioned, and the land was to stay within the family, in the interest of the family. It's part of an economic order that was designed to perpetuate the welfare of the family. And now you've got somebody removing the landmark and stealing the land, and he's asking God to intervene and judge this person and deal with them harshly. Uh, that is pretty much legitimate. Uh, this is not seeking vengeance on your own self. This is not impatience. This is not uh, impassioned hatred. This is wanting justice, that they would deliberately remove the landmark and steal the property. They want God to intervene as the moral judge and deal with that person. So the curse or the pronouncement really is for God to visit that person with some kind of mischief in that person's life because of the um, of violating the, the laws of the land and stealing the, the person's property. So I don't see any, any any problem as far as that is concerned. I think under the economy of law, I think that... Um, Putting that matter in God's hand is far better than putting it in man's hand because if the individual seeks vengeance, uh, I don't have to tell you that uh, war over property, I've seen it happen in St. Lucia, has ended up in death and stabbing and swords and knives and stuff like that. So he's putting it in God's hand and asking God to deal with that person who is stealing the person's property. You were just explaining what's meant there by a curse. Is it ever appropriate in the day and age that we live as Christians to call that a curse or to curse someone? I, I, I don't feel at this time, and for my own judgment, I don't think it is proper for us to be cursing people. I think what we should do is to leave vengeance in God's hand. That's what the Bible says. Vengeance is mine. Leave it in God's hand. What the Bible says to me is my enemy hunger. I, I give him. I feed him. In other words, treat him with kindness. And I think it's right and proper to say to a person, listen, I'm not going to get into a big war and debate with you. What you've done is evil, and I think you know it's evil. So what I've decided, I've put you in God's hand. Let God handle you. I'm not going to seek vengeance on my own, but I'm going to put you in God's hand. Uh, I think that is the right and proper thing for the Christian to do. Let God deal with those kind of matters. This next question uh, deals with end times. Will the tribulation be worldwide? Well, I think if you read the book of Revelation, very, very clear it's going to be worldwide. By the time the, this whole thing is over, two-thirds of the world population is destroyed. 
so if the it would take some time to read Revelation chapter six to the end of Revelation, the book itself, I think you would discover that this is a worldwide event that's going to occur, and everybody. As a matter of fact, one of the things that. Uh, all these islands should be fearful. They said all these islands will disappear. <laughs> so it's there. Whether we like it or not, it's right there in the Bible. It talks about that. And that's what happens when a tremendous earthquake took place and it splits uh, the Mount of Olives. Even the very uh, landmass and the water course is going to change according to, to the scriptures. So yes, it's going to be worldwide, and um, and that's what, again, remember the, the book of Revelation said uh, during that period of time that no man will buy or sell. Uh, except that we see the mark of the beast. And they said the whole world would go after the beast. Uh, so yes, the tribulation is going to be worldwide. And if you'd like more information specifically on the tribulation, uh pastor did an episode, it was episode number 99. You can go to Google, type in That's Truth Podcast. That's Truth Podcast. And you can choose from a number of different podcast providers, Spotify, uh, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, whichever you prefer. And look for episode number 99, and it's entitled Bible Prophecy Part 11, The False Prophet and the Tribulation. And that's true for maybe you missed an episode last week or two weeks ago, and you want to catch up with uh, what questions came in and what pastor's answers were, so that you're better prepared to answer questions when maybe you're talking to your neighbor or you're talking to a coworker and they ask you a question about how do you answer this from the biblical worldview. You can go and listen to all previous episodes of That's Truth. Another way that you can find those episodes, if you would prefer to take this method, is go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse website, radiolighthouse.org. And then just scroll down to the second photo that you see on there, and you'll see a circle right in the middle of that photo that says schedule, uh, excuse me, that says uh, podcast. And you can click on that, and then there will be a link in there for you to be able to see the That's Truth podcast. Time Across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.55. We have about three and a half minutes left in this particular episode of That's Truth. We are not going to get to all the questions that have come in. So if your question does not get answered tonight, fear not. Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen before next Tuesday, we will answer your question. Uh, What is meant by Zion is calling me? I was trying to think the expression when I saw it there. I'm not too familiar with the expression, uh, but we know that the biblical Zion is Jerusalem. I know that the uh, Rastafarians have taken that particular Zion, and uh, their their Zion is not the Jerusalem that the Bible talks about. So, uh, so I'm not too sure what exactly they mean by that, uh, and I'm not sure how the expression is used. Uh, so I really can't answer that question. Maybe I'll, I'll try to dig a little bit more to see if um, find out exactly what they're thinking about and how they're using it. But I, I don't know what they mean. Uh, you know, there's another Zion, is the heavenly Zion. I, if a person is saying Zion is calling me and referring to the heavens, I would take that as a, a metaphor that heaven is calling. Uh, that's how I would take that. But not knowing exactly how it is used, uh, I'm taking risks by supplying an answer without really having the background. The next question, what type of relationship did Adam have with God before the fall? Well, you know, there are not many details in the scriptures in respect to what kind of relation was sustained between Adam and God. But we do know that from the book of uh, Genesis that God came down and walked in the garden and Adam heard God walking. 
we could only assume as a uh, from that that there was a conversation between uh, a relation between Adam and God. That's why Adam was created for God's glory. And I suspect that there was a, t- a time between um, uh, before man had sinned, where there was communion between God and man. There was a relationship that was there. And the fact that uh, the Bible says that Adam heard the Lord's voice is clearly this is not the first time he heard it. So this must be a customary thing that God would come down and communicate with Adam and talk with Adam. So I suspect that. I remember that in his holiness and his innocence, that gave God free liberty to speak to Adam in a more intimate way. Sin has come in and created a barrier between us and God. And because of God's holiness, there is a barricade between us. But one day that will be restored, and we will become perfect like His Son is, and righteous in uh, equal with His Son, having our complete nature changed, becoming like Him. And then we would have that kind of a close relationship. We are told in the book of Re- uh, Revelation there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem because God will be that temple, and we will have access uh, to him, but there had to be a relationship between uh, Adam and Eve. I mean, uh, God and Adam, and the whole purpose of redemption is to restore that relationship between us and God by putting our faith and trust in Christ and having the barrier of sin removed, so that we can go in to have access to Him. So the believer now is a priest unto God. We don't have to have a, a mediator that intercedes for us. We have access to God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and when we come before God, that barrier is removed. Uh, that is a biblical teaching. So there was a communication between the two, and that is being restored now, even though not perfectly, uh, and day by day as a believer goes on in his life and puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Earlier, you mentioned that it doesn't matter what race Moses was. What matters is that I have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that mean that I go to church in the final 30 seconds? It simply means that you put your faith and trust in Christ, you get to know Christ, but after you get to know him, you become a believer. I think it's important that you understand that Christ built the church and you should become a member of the church and part of the church. But church wouldn't save you. The church is just a a means of nurturing you and edifying you and building you up in the kingdom of God. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. Be sure you stay tuned for next week's episode of That's Truth, and we're going to have some more questions that are relating to end times that have come in. Thank you for those who sent them in. Have a blessed night and stay safe. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.